Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is part two of a collaboration between the Islamic History Podcast and the Islamic Vibes Podcast, hosted by Majid Hussein. We are discussing the role of Islam and Muslims in the African slave trade. Now, you can, of course, start listening from here, but it may help, and I would suggest that you start from the previous episode before coming to this one. But if you want to start from here, it's perfectly fine, and it will still make sense, inshallah. Now, if you want to hear the entire episode all at once, I encourage you to go visit the Islamic Vibes podcast, where Brother Majid has the entire episode available. We're going to keep the promos very short today, just going to encourage you to support the Islamic History Podcast and get bonus content by subscribing to Islamic History Exclusive. Islamic History Exclusive is available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, at patreon.com slash Islamic History, and at my own website, islamichistoryexclusive.com. Also encourage you to sign up and listen to the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and it is available on all platforms. The third and final episode of this series about Islam, slavery, and Africa will be available next week, inshallah. But for now, let's continue our discussion on this topic. So yeah, so uh, I think you were gonna go now uh, a bit south in the okay. in Africa. Okay. Now, with um, when it comes to Sub-Saharan Africa, um, Black Africa, however people want to call it, this is where now this is of course long after the Umayyads are gone, the Abbasids are now in control. So. Now you have Muslim leaders and rulers. Muslim world is, first of all, very fractured by now. By the time Islam starts creeping down into sub-Saharan Africa, the Umayyads are gone. The Abbasids are still around, but they're much weaker. There are lots of smaller Arabized or Arab-slash-Berber kingdoms across North Africa. And between North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa is, of course, the Sahara Desert. And this has always played as a a huge barrier between these two groups. Where now for the camel, it would have been very difficult, it would have been impossible for these two groups to have any sort of interaction. But there was interaction. There was warfare between, this is talking about before Islam. Before is, is, it, Islam is, the, probably, is it probably why the, the, the Romans or the Byzantines didn't venture down south or? Yeah, the, the Romans and the Byzantines after them, and I think the Vandals in between them, uh, Vandals between them, they mostly stayed along the coast of North Africa, particularly in Tunisia. Of course, Egypt was always pretty popular, but even over to the west, down to what's now uh, North Morocco, Algeria, places like that, and Libya as well. The, the Romans and the Byzantines, they generally st- stayed along the coast. For one, there is first a range of mountains, I think it's called the Atlas Mountains, and then they have this huge desert, which the, United, the entire continent of the United States can fit inside of wow. with, some, with space to spare. So there's a huge desert there that it prevents uh, humans from crossing, through, from crossing through on foot. It was only the camel that allowed people to go through. And even then, it's very, very dangerous. And by the time Islam came through, there were 
designated routes. There were oases, spaces to refuel, or well, not refuel, but water up and, and uh, rest and things like that. So, but even then, it was still a very dangerous affair to try to cross that Sahara Desert, even with camels, even with proper preparation and well-known path. It was not easy to do it and very, very difficult to bring an entire army through. Nearly impossible until very late in human history, uh, say maybe around the 13th, 14th, 15th century before armies could come through there. And even then they had to go a roundabout way through Morocco, not straight through like through Libya or anything like that. They had to go around through Morocco to come down into um, Africa uh, as far as being an army is concerned. Individual caravans and people could do that. Now, one of the accusations against Islam is that Islam is spread by the sword. Fun fact, not true. <laughs> there are very few, I can't think of any so any of the major Muslim nations below the, the Sahara Desert, the sub-Saharan Muslim nations that were brought into Islam by force. I'm trying to think of any. I can't think of any right now off the top of my head. So what were so areas, to, what were so countries, Omar? Nigeria, Niger? Yeah, yeah Nigeria, uh, Niger, um, Senegal, Gambia, um, Chad, these places. Now you get over to the east, um, Ethiopia. Ethiopia is still majority Christian. Somalia. There weren't there weren't really conquests there either. But well, let me see. Now there were black Muslims who conquered non black uh, you know black non Muslims and brought Islam there, but not Arab conquering armies. So there were quite a few Muslim empires who were black Muslim empires who conquered a whole lot of people, <laughs> and they brought Islam. Through. I won't say they brought Sam through force, but they brought these lands into their territory by force. So that did happen, but it was not conquering Arab armies coming down and, and forcing the black people to accept Islam. The way these um, Islam came into sub-Saharan Africa in most cases was through trade and marriage. And most usually trade led to marriage. Okay. Berber or Arab merchants, they would come down across the Sahara start doing business in the African kingdoms that are already established, particularly in Ghana. Now, we say the empire of Ghana, we're not talking about the modern nation of Ghana. The modern state of Ghana is nowhere near the original empire of Ghana. But they will come down and do business there. Eventually, some of them may stay. Some of these Arab or Berber merchants would stay and just settle down there. And they'll marry a local African woman, start having children, and his children would become Muslim. And eventually, over time, he would make he may convince a few people to accept Islam. And over time, little pockets of little Muslim communities would sprout up within these African kingdoms, these small African kingdoms. Over time, the African Muslims, particularly the empire of Ghana, the African Muslims became more and more critical to the operations of the state because the African Muslims had one major advantage, they could write. Um, being able to, they, they learned, they don't have to read and write Arabic and being able to write. And that is an important skill for the function of any government. So very often you may have a, a non-Muslim African king or emperor, but almost his entire administration, or much of it would be run by Muslims okay. who could write because they had that. Also Muslim merchants, Muslims had rules of, uh, of business. There are, there are Islamic rules of business that we have to follow. And so they also, because people tended to prefer to do business with them because whether you like the rules or not, at least you know what to expect. Whereas people who don't have rules, you don't know what you're going to get. 
So mm-hmm. you actually knew what to expect with the Muslims. So many of them grew powerful through the government, grew powerful through trade and through business. Over time, eventually, you wound up with the Muslim emperor. So the empire of Ghana was probably one of the first Muslim empires in West Africa to go from um, um, non-Muslim to Muslim. And it went through a completely peaceful process, as far as I'm aware of. There you know, was you know, no... You're non-Muslim. When you say non-Muslim, uh, what was it like some, some local... Uh, uh, yeah, or, the, um, the overall... Yeah, the overall term for the various different African beliefs that originate in Africa is generally called TAR, traditional African religions. So there's they're very hard to... It's very difficult to put them all in one group and they have various different beliefs. Um, I don't want to use the word paganism because they weren't all pagans. That's what we, we consider pagans or worship a bunch of idols. They weren't all like that. We could probably say from a Muslim perspective, I'd say Mushu the king. We could, probably, we could definitely say Mushu the king. But the English word pagan or polytheist doesn't quite fit all of them all the time. Some of them did ancestor worship. Some of them did not. Some of them um, did what's considered animism, which is kind of like worshiping the spirits that exist in trees and different rocks and stuff like that. So I don't want to throw the word pagan on them, but I will say that often group, and this is also kind of outdated term as well. Traditional African religion is somewhat outdated. This is the best term that I can think of right now. Okay. And uh, it is, you know, these are religions that originated in Africa and not from either Arabia as far as Islam is concerned or from Europe as far as Christianity is concerned. So these, um, these non-Muslim empires, empire, particularly Ghana, eventually became Muslim. Now, by the time they became Muslim, the economy had shifted. Before that, Ghana was very um, particular. Ghana made a lot of money off of gold, gold and salt to trade. Salt was very important for preservation and for food, things like that. And gold was, gold has always been important in human society. But by the time the government had become Muslim, their fortunes had changed. And so now Ghana began to try to expand by force in order to keep itself relevant by this time. And this meant going to war with some of its neighbors. And its neighbors are generally not Muslim. When they were defeated, they acquired slaves, and now they have a new source of income. And so that, I won't say that was the beginning of the slave trade because there was slavery going on even before that. And even before Islam, there was some slave trade going on between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, back and forth. But with the expansion of some of these, with, expand, with expanding warfare, particularly in uh, West Africa, that kind of kicked into gear because now you have a bunch of POWs and you have to do something with them. And that's how slavery, the, that's the one way how slavery began in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, slavery only exists with a demand. There has to be someone who wants those slaves. Now, the um, Muslim African empires went through several stages, Ghana, the Mali, and Songhai. In all cases, though, the Muslims generally controlled that region between where the Sahara Desert ends and the um, sub-Saharan Africa begins, the part where people can start living, particularly around the Niger River where it becomes habitable for human existence. With the abundance of POWs and slaves now, there was a constant back and forth movement of Black Muslim empires or Black Muslim rulers or kingdoms 
fighting and defeating non-Muslim neighbors and taking those POWs and shipping them up north. Now, there are also cases of, in some cases, a few Berbers and um, Arabs coming down also, but they did, they did some raiding. I can't say they didn't do any raiding, but for the most part, usually the Arabs or Berbers from North Africa came to Africa, bought slaves off of the Muslim African rulers, and then just transported them back across the Sahara. So, you know, quick question, and, uh, quick question at this sure. stage, uh, Brother Mutaki. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when, we talk, when, we talk, when we're talking about the slave trade, it seems like a business, right? But you know, when you're saying right. that the Ghana Empire, because of its economic uh, situation, had to expand. Um, so even at this stage, you know, the slaves, they are, they are the natural outcome of the warfare, which right. the primary reason is to conquest and to boost up your economy, right? Mm-hmm. So, however, it wasn't like they were fighting these nations in order to enslave them specifically for that reason and then boost their economy on the slaves. Not yet. That happened several hundred years later. Eventually, it did get to that point. But also remember, it's happened the other way around. The Muslims didn't win every battle. So when the Muslims lost battle, their their conquered POW became slaves for the non-African Muslims. But I guess also it's like, you know, if if, if people just think about the movie Gladiator, um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the uh, the act the, the main actor Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, that's yeah. it. You know, if you if you think about it in those days, because it's really good, because you keep calling it POW, and that's actually what they are in the sense like there was a battle, and the people that that now who are defeated, you have to do something with them. You have to do something mm-hmm. with them. So you then you know their their authority, their power is gone. So you've now enslaved them. Um, and and then you do what you need to, whether they become they serve people in their homes or whether now because there is a trade going on, you you know you you sell that you sell the slave and you make some money from it. But I think it's like what we have to understand is in in, in throughout the time throughout time I think maybe later on and I'm sure you're going to get to it where maybe it became the incentive of actually going to war to in order to get slaves. But I think before this time, generally, the slaves were the outcome of the war rather than the reason for the war. That's true. In the beginning, particularly, these empires were expanding. Mali became a huge empire. Uh, we all hear the story of Nasa Musa making his great hajj. And he had, you talk about all the gold he had, he also had thousands of slaves with him too. <laughs> and those slaves were generally conquered people. And uh, it most of the cases was POWs, true, but once it was just like when the Arabs conquered Persia. You know, once you conquer that land, technically, you know, the people, the conquering army could do whatever they wanted with those people. Sometimes they freed them, depending on how belligerent they were. They may have uh, enslaved them as well, depending on, on what the needs were at that time. You're talking about hundreds of years of fighting, warfare society. It's um, very difficult to, but, but to Paul, say only one thing. I want to make, well, I want to ask you. Because I, I think this mm-hmm. needs to be made clear is mm-hmm. that um, when the Muslims went to war, so just say now they have um, besieged a, a city, okay, and, and, and the, the, the leader, the authority has declined the offer. So now basically it's jihad fees to be learned. It's, you know, um, basically you, you would be the conqueror. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about the, the, the slaves, okay. Would they consist of 
the people who you fought or what do they consist of the population? Now, what I mean is like, now just say now, for example, Damascus is conquered. Even though Damascus, there was a funny, funny thing that happened between the two companions, mm-hmm. but just say another city. Yeah. It wasn't like as if the, the Muslim soldiers were going house by house and taking the people because now they are their slaves. In San Francisco, it's like, where's yeah, the, where, yeah. where do you draw the line? Who is it that you enslave? Is it the people you fought? Or now if that whole city falls, basically every single person within the city is up for, can be enslaved. Right. That would often depend on the circumstance. I wish I'd give you a single answer, but it was, there is no single answer often. Sometimes the, if it was a hard-fought battle and a long siege that lasted several months or even a year, then once those walls fell and that city was conquered, in many cases, it was a tradition, in many cases where the um, general will allow three days of pillaging. Now, I don't know if that comes from Islam or from tradition. I don't know where that comes from. So I don't remember the process of allowing anything like that to happen. So that may have just been a tradition that just developed. But they allowed three days of pillaging. And during that period of time, people could be captured. And But Usually, you only have so, many, so much land you can cover on foot within three days uh, without, you know, without uh, mass transit like we have today. So you are right in that everybody would not be enslaved. No, that usually was not the case. Uh, those three days after the war fell, after the, the walls fell and the city was conquered, that could be a time where civilians may have been conquered or, or captured and put as slaves. And also remember that uh, back then, Often people went to war with their women folk, with their wives and, and, and stuff with them as well. Their wives came along with them. And once those, once those um, the armies fell, the army was defeated, you know, that's the women who were there could often be captured, sure. were often captured. Yeah, and, sure. and in many ways, they were part of the they were part of the army itself. They provided nurse, nursing, they provided food and they helped you know heal the warriors after they were injured. So they were part of the whole army apparatus. In, so in, in fact, could be considered. in fact, many times the reason why the, the women folk were there and the children was to motivate mm-hmm. the fight, the men, that if yeah. you fall, yeah. we're gone. It was it, that's how it was. Exactly, exactly. So oftentimes the well, people who were, who were not considered combatants were brought into the field of battle by their, you know, by their men who were in the, who were in the military. So it didn't happen. Bottom line is, most cases, the war, most cases, the people who became slaves in the Muslim world were done through actions, military action. But there were many cases where either unscrupulous Muslim businessmen or Maybe just rulers who want to expand their territory or people who just need their money, they would sometimes attack yeah, sure. people who they were not fighting with, people who they didn't have, have excuse me, people they didn't have any war with. They would go ahead and fight them and sometimes acquire slaves in that manner. There is, um, and as far as the slave trade is, is concerned itself, the actual slave trade, the actual business of slavery, there is no way to forcefully transport people across several miles of desert in a nice way, um, at least before the, you know, the creation of the invention of the train and the cars and stuff like that. Back then, the slave trade is by nature brutal. Whether it's going across the Atlantic Ocean or going across going across the Sahara, 
slave trade itself is brutal no matter what. And Muslims who participate in the slave trade and those who, however they got their slaves, or their POWs or free raiding, but most of them, like I said, were POWs or defeated enemies um, if they weren't necessarily um, com actual combatants. Either way, that, that um, transit from, from Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa to North Africa was where many of them died and where most of the brutality happened within the Islamic slave trade, so to speak. That's where most of the brutality happened. Just like the danger, the worst part for the transatlantic slave trade was going across the Atlantic Ocean. That was that's where most of the brutality happened, going across the Atlantic Ocean. There was no different with the Muslim world either. That part was the worst part. However, the biggest difference between Islamic slavery or slavery in the Muslim world and slavery in the West was once the slaves actually wound up with their final household or actually wound up the treatment of slaves within the Muslim world was much better, way, way better than the treatment of slaves in the non-Muslim world. You can say that slavery is slavery, that's true, but there is a big difference between the way slaves are treated in the Muslim world and the way slaves are treated in the non-Muslim world. And that's an important thing to make. Yeah, you know? well, that, that's something that I want to ask you about anyway. But after mm -hmm. you've 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 explained, I, I just jumped a little bit. I know. Yeah, because that, that's 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 a really important point. That is, we need to we need to highlight highlight that. So, so yeah. So going back to the the, the Ghana uh, mm -hmm. Empire and Mali and and so on. And I think you say now they're okay. basically you know, they're expanding. Okay. Yeah, they're expanding. They're they're gravitating slaves, and now also there's a demand for slavery. The the idea that all this this huge population because the Arabs and Berbers of North Africa, they saw Sub-Saharan Africa as this huge, gigantic landmass with millions upon millions of people. And they were right, they were, but they knew that they could acquire slaves from there. And they could also get them from the Europeans across the Mediterranean. That required warfare. <laughs> they could easily get captured slaves from, you know, from the Muslims um, below the Sahara Desert. And so that created demand. Now, this is where it's going to blend into what I just said about the treatment of slaves in a way. In the Americas, um, the majority of slaves, especially in the beginning, were men. They needed men to work the fields, whether the sugarcane fields in the Caribbean or the cotton and rice fields in the Americas, they preferred men. However, in the Arab world, the preference was for women. Women slaves were more desired because they were mostly domestic workers. And also, let's be honest, concubines as well. They were mostly desired for those two reasons. I, mostly domestic workers, but domestic workers, they will all often become concubines as well, which is why very, in very few Arab countries, Arab nations today, you don't really have a large black population. You have that in the Americas, in the United States, and in some parts of, the, of South America. You have that in the Caribbean, definitely. If all of these millions upon millions of Africans were shipped across the Sahara Desert, why don't you have large pockets of African or African descent communities? You have a few. I know there's a few. Shall I tell, you, don't really, shall I tell you, know? you why? Not, not, this is not the reason no, sure. why. This is not the reason mm -hmm. why, but this is what's alleged. And it's really important that you make that point because I came across something which at that time I thought, I, I can't see why they're making this point. But... What you just explained there, I think accounted to it from those people who tried to show that the Arabs moved 
between 17 to 18 million Africans to the Arab lands is because the men were castrated. And like I said, I have heard that. Yeah. I, I've not come across this from any Muslim authority. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, looking at the way, um, just just the, the, the Islam itself, you know, it, it, it doesn't, I need to probably do a bit more research on this, but it doesn't add up. However, what you've said there is a valid point. Why don't you see so many people? And I think maybe it's a case where that's a question that the people accusing Muslims have also thought. And the easy answer would be, well, they all got castrated. Yeah, it's kind of hard to castrate millions of people at a time. <laughs> 17, 18 million people. Yeah, it's kind of hard to castrate. And these would have been defeated warriors. These would have, been, these would not have been weak men. These would have been men who were able to survive transit across the Sahara. These would have been former warriors. They would have been strong men. They wouldn't just, you know, the castration, I guess, is possible. But that would be a huge enterprise. And I think there would be, now, of course, they were units. But usually, units were created as boys, as, as little boys. That's when they were usually created, not generally grown men. No, the reason why they weren't, you just said the Arabs preferred, the Arabs, you can look at the, the geography of, of North Africa and it tells you everything. There are no plantations in North Africa. There's no, you're not going to grow, grow cotton in North Africa, um, not back then, hardly ever rain. It didn't, have the, it didn't have the geography and the temperature for huge plantations where chattel slavery was required. The slaves are brought, they were, were bought for usually three things, domestic work, as I mentioned, working in some manual labor, like working the docks, building things, construction, stuff like that, and then purchase or repurchase or resell in other places. So they will often sell them sometimes across, off, often into Europe. So the Europeans were often complicit in the same thing. It wasn't just the Arabs. The Europeans also bought black slaves from the Arabs as well, and the North Africans as well, on into uh, Europe. Um, so there, those are the three, the three general, general um, destinations for the black slaves coming across there. But by and large, the vast majority, especially in the, in the, up until the uh, 1700s or so, most of them were required, most of the people they were required were women, females were more, were more desired for domestic work, Often they became concubines, sometimes even wives. And one big difference between the Muslim world and the, and the um, European world or the American world is that in Islam, you can't enslave your children. That's just doesn't happen. That, that's incon- inconceivable for a Muslim to enslave his own child. That just doesn't work. In the United States, very often, the, um, the white master would enslave one of his uh, slaves, I mean, sorry, would impregnate one of his slaves, and his child would remain a slave, <laughs> which is... To, which is well, look at uh, Thomas, to uh, Thomas Jefferson. Exactly, he had several of his own children as slaves. I mean, that's just that's inconceivable in the Muslim world. In the Muslim world, if you do have, if a man does have a concubine who's a slave, his children are born free. And that's just it. Now, and those go back into the fic. There are some fic rules that say if a slave marries another slave and they have children, the child is also a slave as well. That's different. But in most cases, the uh, free man would marry or just um, just impregnate his, his uh, slave, his female slave, but the child would be free, which is why you have, in some cases, emperors who mother, whose mothers were slaves in some parts, some parts of the Muslim world. Emperors, powerful men whose mothers were slaves, but their father was the, em- was the emperor or the king. That happened countless times again, because in Islam, you can't enslave your own children, which to me is a 
it is bonkers that that even happened in the United States. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. But that's the, one of the reasons why you don't have these large black communities is because you know, the, the child was born half black, half Arab, or half black, half Berber. And then he just, he became, he or she became part of the society and he was free and he went on about his life. And so that created the rules of Islam often created a, a, a demand for slaves. It was kind of the irony of it is that there were so many ways to free slaves and Muslims did free so many of their slaves. The average lifespan for a slave in the Muslim world is estimated at about seven years. By lifespan, I mean, I don't mean like they died. Now, of course, some did die from disease and sickness, even perhaps even from mistreatment. But oft, as often as those things happen, a slave generally stopped being a slave within seven years. Either got, they got freed by the master or they got married, and then that, line, that lineage of slaves would be cut off. And so that would create a demand for slaves. So one number that I read was that there's a 15%, the, the Muslim, the slaves in the Muslim world, every year they had to replenish their, their slave population by 15% because they just couldn't keep their slave population up. Whereas in um, the United States and the Caribbean, particularly in the United States, the um, slave population was allowed to procreate because it was considered, there they were really treated like how you would treat cattle, horses. You want more horses, bring in a stallion to, to impregnate the mare, and you get more horses. And so in the United States, slaves are treated in much the same way. In the Muslim world, I'm not saying it was perfect, by no means slavery is, is generally a humiliating affair, no matter who does it or how it's done. But still, the treatment of, of slaves within the Muslim world was better. And the very fact that, you know, we didn't have, well, not we, but there were no um, large plantations in the Muslim world. They didn't have a need for large fields in some parts. Now there were some parts in Iraq, there were some, but I'm talking about just in North Africa, there wasn't a need for large slave populations to do heavy, heavy work. And the slaves were often not slaves anymore within seven years, within less than a decade. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, uh, even we know that one of the categories for zakat is, you know, to mm -hmm. pay to a slave uh, in order for to work towards his treatment. Also, we know another rule of Islam where, if the um, if the slave wanted to make a deal with the uh, with the with the master in order to uh, to get his freedom, then uh, I think at the time of Umar ibn Khattab, I think it was him. He said, like, look, you, this has to happen. You, the, the master has to honor this. So you know what? That, that makes mm -hmm. sense what you're saying because if people are becoming free, then you need someone to replace to do that work, right? right. So now it kind of makes sense because that's what, that's, that's what I'm saying to you because when you're thinking about slavery, again, you think of 12 years a slave or you're thinking about, you know, that movie, or you're thinking about yeah. all these things and and and... and but in reality, they did many different types of jobs. It wasn't just whip in the fields, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so moving on, bro. We could, we could obviously. I'm not sure if uh, you want to give some more juicy information in regards to the sort of slave trade. But I think from what you're what you're saying is, when it was happening in Africa, there were Muslim rulers who were, you know, um, profiting from this trade. However it was uh, also non-Muslims that were doing the same. It was just something which was which was done, um, certainly from, we see warfare. And I think the important point mm -hmm. really at this stage is, is, you know, we started off with the fiqh of, you know, the, the Islamic viewpoint on slavery. 
Um, and there are many things like you mentioned, even the fact that, you know, the, the children of the, uh, the slave woman to uh, her master are born free. And then when the master dies, she's made free. So we see that mm-hmm. there, there's, there's loads of things happening there which changed the complete dynamics of how slavery was understood. But what we do see from your examples is that, you know, and we see today is that you have Islam and then you have the way Muslims behave and they're not always yeah. in sync. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we see that there were cases like you're saying where there was a demand and, um, you know, those people had to come from somewhere. And unfortunately, you know, um, a lot of this was being uh, manipulated, raids. But I think it's important also to, to acknowledge that even still, even from just, say, the Muslims in North Africa, a lot of them, would you not say that uh, they were buying the slaves? And their participation in this 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 whole slave trade, if you want to call it that, was that they were buying it. Were they were they also uh, very were, were they also um, involved in the, the trade as sellers as well on on a large scale, or was it mostly mm-hmm. they were involved in the the purchasing part? Uh, they were definitely on, on both sides of it. Uh, for one, and they did do some raiding, particularly in the areas going towards East Africa. There were some Arabs and Berbers who raided uh, some parts of East Africa, and they weren't even at war. In fact, they were actually Muslim countries or, or Muslim states that they raided. But these were exceptions, not the rule. And say Muslims don't always follow the rules of their own, of their own faith. And so there were in East Africa, um, or going towards East Africa, like in Chad, Nigeria, parts places like that, where Berbers would come down from Libya and and raid Muslim Muslim states and carry Muslims away as slaves. So that did happen, but that was again was the exception, not the rule. As far as um, the actual business side of it, yeah, there were definitely uh, there were always intermediaries, there were always intermediary uh, middlemen. Um, slavers, however you want to call them, or slave traders, however you want to call them. So if once the slaves are brought to, say, Timbuktu or some state or some city that was right on the edge of the Sahara Desert, then the trade will happen and they'll go from the hands of the Africans to the hands, the hands of the Muslim Africans to the higher hands of the Muslim Arabs slash Berbers. And then they'll be transported across the Sahara Desert, taken to North America, uh, to North Africa, and then the slave trade will happen again. They'll be cleaned up and everything. Those who survived the, the Trans-Sahara trip, they'll be cleaned up and then sold off into slavery from there. Sometimes, however, they were resold on into um, Europe, particularly in Spain. Um, and not just, not just when the Muslims controlled Spain, but also when the Muslims didn't control Spain. They also traded up into the Muslim, the, um, the parts of Iberia that had been reconquered by the uh, Christians and also into Italy as well. And not so far as North as um, Britain, that was very rare, but definitely the parts of the Mediterranean area, South France, um, Spain, Iberia, Italy, Sicily, those places received a lot of uh, black slaves being resold by Muslims in North Africa. And so that did happen often. Now, when it comes to transatlantic slave trade, that's more complicated. There were very, very few Muslim Arabs involved in the transatlantic slave trade. I have a hard, I haven't heard of any of them yet, any of them yet. The transatlantic slave trade was a purely African affair, 
uh, except for the European part, of course. But the um, the 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 slaves were often brought from either it could be either Muslim or non-Muslim. They were both both were both parties were involved, but the population of that area was mostly non-Muslim. So most of that um, slave trade between that goes across the Atlantic was happening between non-Muslim rulers or kings or whomever who had slaves and their slaves could have been either, either been people who were in debt, people who were captured in warfare, however many means they got their slaves. And then they, they sold them off to the Europeans and the Europeans took them across the Atlantic Ocean. There were some Muslims involved in that also, but Muslims were also slaves in that as well. <laughs> Muslims were both slaves, but it was not as common for Muslims to be involved in the slave trade, but there were some. I mean, there had to have been some, but the vast majority were non-Muslim Africans selling other Africans. And be clear there, I want to make sure people understand that people, let's not think of Africa as one monolith. Africa has thousands of different ethnicities. So just like um, French and German people, they all the that divides them is the line in, in the dirt. That's what divides France and Germany. But they still consider themselves two different, two separate people. Same thing. So these Africans were not necessarily selling their brothers, so to speak. They were selling another group of people who they might have been at war with or had a feud with or whatever, things like that. They did not consider them their quote unquote brothers. They considered them their enemy or their rival in most cases. <laughs>